Good morning, Three Rivers Church. It's good to see us getting back to full strength after summer break. I'm glad that you're here this morning. Uh, before uh, we launch into our text today, uh, I want to remind you of a few announcements. Uh, I told you last week I was going to do this for several weeks so that you would know. I don't know if you've noticed behind me, but the, it looks really neater than it's looked in almost 15 years. Um, the stage is skirted. And there's pipe and drape up. Therefore, moms and dads, we ask that you not let your little ones play on the stage or on the pipe and drape, because there are things that can cut them, hurt them, wound them, and there are things that they can break. And I don't need you to have to lay your money out to repair those things or fix your child, right? Or sue us because they got hurt on property. So therefore, moms and dads, if you would, make sure your little ones don't play on the stage or on the pipe and drape. And if you heard that and understand, raise your right hand. I'm not seeing hands raised. You didn't understand. If you heard and understand that, raise your right hand. All right, excellent. Also, Everything that you've heard announcement-wise is available on the website under the tab TR Central, right? If you need to know something, you can go there and look. If you heard and understood that announcement, raise your other hand, which would be your left hand. You guys are awesome. Very good. Thank you for doing that. That's absolutely fantastic. Hey, guys, we're uh, launching into, we're almost finished, our series called 16 Verses in which we're teaching uh, you how to study particularly the Old Testament and how it's viewed through the lens of the gospel. And we've looked at various signposts throughout the Old Testament to help us navigate our way to Jesus from the text of the Old Testament. As we said in the very beginning, this was a very intro approach. And I gave you several resources that you could go and read and dive a little deeper into the discipline of what is called biblical theology. And that is the study of how the entire narrative of Scripture points us to Jesus. And so one of those is uh, is According to Plan by Graham Goldsworthy. Uh, according to Plan. If you just Google, go to Amazon.com and, and look up According to Plan, it'll pop up. And you can get it if you're a Prime member in two days. Great read. Take you a little deeper into the discipline that we're studying. And so we've been navigating our way through these 16 verses that help us to see how the whole Scripture points us to Jesus. And today we come on the backside of the cross and the resurrection to Romans 3, 21 to 26, and we're talking about justification. Justification. I want to recognize on the front end that we're going to use a lot of big words this morning, okay? I recognize that, and the reason we use those words is not because we're trying to be snooty or use language that is unintelligible. It is because the Bible uses those words. And so what we're going to do is we're going to explain them today so that we have a clear understanding of what Jesus has done for us in His death and resurrection, which is exactly what we studied last week. The cross, the message of the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died, Jesus rose, so therefore, I ask this question very simply, so what? So what? What did Jesus' death and what did His resurrection accomplish? What did it do for us? If, if Jesus just died and rose and there's no effect, what good was it? Romans three twenty-one to 26 is going to answer that question today. What did Jesus accomplish in His death and resurrection. Our passage today is probably the most concentrated exposition of the work of the cross in the whole Bible. As a matter of fact, um, Martin Luther said that it is the centerpiece of the whole Bible. 
It is the centerpiece of everything taught in Scripture. Another uh, New Testament scholar who's still alive, Luther's past, Reformation, right? A guy named uh, Leon Morris, which you probably don't know who he is, but he's pretty important in New Testament scholarship if you're into that world, suggests that Romans 3, 21 to 26 may be the most important single paragraph ever written in the history of mankind. And I don't think he's overstating the point. So we come to Romans 3, 21 to 26. I'm going to read it for us. And we're going to go back and make our observations. And then we're going to make some application and obedience. Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known, revealed, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Which we've spent now 15 weeks... Unpacking that. The law and the prophets bear witness to this. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. So that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We pray for us. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would do all that Jesus said you would do. You'd bear witness to Jesus, bear witness to the gospel, tear down unbelief, convict concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. All those glorious things we ask you to do now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me not to mess this most important paragraph up. Help me to be faithful. Help us to understand. Help us to see and savor more of Jesus. I pray for resurrection to happen in the hearts of some who may not believe. And for those of us who you have taken from death to life, you would encourage our faith and strengthen our faith this morning. Makes for worshiping people and evangelizing people, the global people, because of your justifying work. We pray you'd pull that off now in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we see? What does it mean? What do we see? What does it mean? First observation. Romans 3.21, God's righteousness is displayed in the cross and resurrection. But now, right? But now the righteousness of God. He starts verse 21 in response to what he has been writing basically from chapter 1 verse 18 all the way through chapter 3 verse 20. And he's laying out the bad news, the consequence of the curse. And he says now, but now. That is in response to this terribly bad news that even the law can't save us. God has done something. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. According to Romans 3.21, a righteousness from God has been revealed. And he uses a tense here, grammatically, that's very important because it refers to the work of Christ on the cross and His resurrection and all of the following consequences. 
Meaning what Jesus has done in His work is effectual, it's powerful, it's accomplished the mission, and all of the effects bear witness and are effectual carrying out. And He makes an important point here. And that important point is that God has now put on display His righteousness. His righteousness. Why is righteousness so important? Here's why. Because at the fall, Genesis 3, God's reputation took a hit. God's name took a hit. He was accused of not being for the good of His image bearers. The evil one brought to the table a counter-argument, a counter-kingdom, a lie that somehow God isn't good, He's holding out on you, He doesn't want what's best for you. What you need to do is disobey His word, disobey His command, eat from that tree, and then you will be like Him. And therefore, what was right was brought into question. God's rightness, His righteousness was brought into question. And from that point forward, all of salvation history, God's righteousness has been impugned. It's been thought bad of. It's been thought evil of. You say, how do you know? Because every time God says to do something, His people do the opposite. If God's right, then why don't we obey Him? That's a pretty simple question, but it's a very powerful question. Because all through the text, we are recorded time after time after time after time that God says what is right and His people do the exact opposite. No different than today. God's Word is clear, but we do our own thing because after all, I'm in it for me. Right? David was in it for David. Solomon was in it for Solomon. In spite of their best efforts. And so what has happened is, God's rightness, His righteousness, that is, what is right, what is righteous, what is holy. The word righteous isn't a very complicated word. It simply means what's right. And the standard of what's right is God Himself. And everything He has written, His truth, that's right. And so what we see from Genesis 3 on is that God's name, His reputation, His rightness has been brought into question. So therefore, God accomplishes in the cross the manifestation of the fact that He is right. He is righteous. His standard is righteous. What is it that God requires in righteousness? What is it that God is saying to us? God is saying that His name and His reputation is what is right. And through the cross, He restores His reputation. He restores His fame by breaking the curse, proving that He is right through the execution of His own Son so that image bearers might be able to be restored from the curse in which they are no longer right. Here's a devastating consequence of the fall. You and I don't act right. We're conceived not acting right. We come out of the womb not acting right. Not concerned with the righteousness of God. And so God proves He's right. He executes His own demands Himself. Bears the penalty Himself. And then makes possible rightness for all those who come to Him in repentance and faith. So we see that the righteousness of God has been made known. It's been clear. So on the cross, God puts what is right on display. Observation number two from verse 22. God's righteousness then 
is available for all who believe through faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. So we see now God has put His righteousness on display. He's shown us what's right. He's displayed to us what is holy. He's displayed to us what is right and that He Himself demands a price for sin. He Himself pays the price for the rebellion. And now God makes that available to everyone who will believe through faith in Jesus. Not complicated, but very important. Righteousness is available to all who believe. All who believe. If you're looking at the notes on the blog, MitchJolly.com, you'll see I underlined and italicized all who believe. There is no universalism here. God's righteousness doesn't get credited to everybody just because Jesus dies and rises. God's righteousness is counted to those who believe. In other words, repentance and faith are necessary for us to have the righteousness of God credited to us. In other words, there is a believing activity that has to take place. And Paul's later going to make the argument in chapter 10 that that's only going to happen when this good news is preached from our mouths to those who need to know. Which means implicitly, and I didn't put this in the applications because I knew I was going to say it here. And so just hear this act of obedience right here. The righteousness of God made available to everyone who believes is implicitly stating the rightness of the Great Commission that we preach this gospel to those who need to hear. And how beautiful are the feet of those who believe and bring the good news. In other words, let's just get real bare bones honest. If we are not articulating the gospel in the dark recesses of our domains, we don't believe the gospel. The gospel is not to be held inside these four walls as our little play pretty and our little play toy. The gospel is available to everyone who will believe, meaning those who need to believe need to hear. Their response is up to Jesus, not you. But I want you to understand there's an implicit demand that we get involved and preach the gospel because it's available to those who will believe. Only to those who will believe. If they don't believe, there's no rightness from God for them. As a matter of fact, Paul will go on in chapter 6 to address one of the arguments that people are making to him that, well, if that's the case, and you can keep sinning, and it's okay. And Paul will go on to say, if you keep doing that, your condemnation is deserved. We'll hit that as a matter of application in just a few moments. So in other words, just because Jesus died and rose doesn't mean everybody on earth gets in. It's available to those who believe. In order for them to believe, you need to preach the gospel to them. Not me, not the professional M, you, all of us, engaging our domain for the sake of the gospel. And here, I'm going to be dropping this on you for a few weeks, okay? We've, we've got our date settled. September the 9th, that's a Saturday morning at 9 o'clock in this room. My imam friend, my imam, yes you heard that right, imam, Muslim pastor, is going to be in this room. And I've invited him to bring some of his friends from the Islamic Center to teach you what Islam is. Alright? I'm an evangelist. I love the gospel. And I love the gospel to go into ears who need to hear. It's my great thing that drives me. And the confidence we have in Jesus is that He will make it effective. And so guess what? Jesus loves Muslims and He wants to save them. And guess what? They're going to come in this room. They're coming to your house. 
And I'm that freak some of you out. You're welcome to not come back if you don't believe the gospel. That's okay. There are other churches that would be glad to have you. But we believe Jesus likes to save lost people. And the gospel is powerful and effective to do so. And so, when you build relationships and you love people like Jesus taught you to love them, they'll respond in friendship. And guess what? They're going to be here in this room. We're going to show hospitality. And we're going to love them. And we're going to talk about Jesus. Isn't that awesome? And some of you are like, oh, isn't that awesome? What if they come? No, no, no. Quit reading Fox and CNN. Read your Bible. It's better. You'll worry less. Preach gospel more. I promise you it's good. Right? But I want you to come. But I'm, 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 I'm telling you now. I'm inviting you into my harvest field. Don't mess it up. I'm serious. I'm not playing any games. Eternal souls are at stake. You understand? So if you can't handle that, just stay at home. Georgia plays that evening anyway. Kicks off at 7. I'll be nice and secure by 7 watching the game. But from 9 to noon, if you want to engage, you need to be in this room. Okay? Because this message teaches us that this righteousness, the rightness of God, is only available to those who believe. And the only way they can believe is to hear. Therefore, Romans 10 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If you want beautiful feet, come on. But it's available only to those who believe. Third observation from verse 23. God's righteousness is available for all who believe because... He's like, oh, you already said that. And so I put because, because that's what verse 23 addresses. It addresses the reason the righteousness of God is now available for all who believe. Because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Verse 23, for all have sinned. So that's what the word for means. It's a purpose clause. It's letting you know the purpose for which God has made His righteousness available for those who believe. Because all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory. In other words, every single individual descendant from Adam and Eve, meaning everybody, has sinned. And the tense of that word means they're guilty of sin. And fall short, present tense, continually, ongoingly, fall short of God's glory. What in the world does that mean? Well, sin means, means to, to have sin, like to break God's truth, to Break the boundaries of God's righteousness. To break God's law. But fall short of God's, God's glory. What in the world does that mean? This word glory likely refers to the image of God's glory in which we are created. Therefore, not only have we sinned, but we continually fail to live up to what it means to be an image bearer of God. A little quote for you here from John Stott. You probably don't know who he is, but he's one of my favorites. I like Stott. He's an Anglican. But don't hold that against him. He loves Jesus, loves the gospel. John Stott, I like, I like you probably don't want to know this, but I'm going to tell you. I like Stott because he writes scholarly, but he doesn't write unreadable. I don't like unreadable scholarship because they're wasting their time. If you can't read it, it makes if if it's English and you got to read it for the third time to understand it, they didn't write well, right? Stott writes so you can understand. I love Stott, and here here's what Stott says here. Of course, there are degrees of sinning, and therefore differences. Yet nobody even approaches God's standard. And then he quotes a guy uh, with a last name of M O U L Mool, puts it dramatically. The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory. But so are you. 
Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. In other words, doesn't matter your level of sin. You can't touch God's glory just like anybody else can. Right? So the reason God made His righteousness available is because whether we're at the bottom of a mine or standing on an alp, we can't ascend to God's righteousness. It's not approachable. So God makes His righteousness available for those who believe because there's a problem. And the problem is we all have sinned. We're guilty of an eternal sin of not believing God, impugning His righteousness, trashing His reputation by not obeying Him. And we continually fall short of what it means to be an image bearer. That's the result of the curse on man. So what in the world are we to do? Verse 24, the first part of verse 24. Sinners now, that is those who sin and have fallen short of God's glory, are justified by God's free grace. Notice here, like Paul's writing... The verses break off complete sentences. You understand? The verses, like the numbers aren't inspired. I hope you understand that. Chapters and verses aren't inspired. The text is inspired. So, I don't have time to teach you a class on New Testament stuff while we got chapters and verses. Just know the numbers aren't inspired. They're just there to help you. Right? But this is a, a longer sentence. So you're like, well, you're, you're, you're like not reading the whole sentence. Right? We're breaking it down in components. Right? So, all sin and fall short of God's glory. Verse 24, and are now justified by His grace as a gift. So, how is the problem repaired that we sin and fall short of God's glory? How is it we get God's righteousness? Sinners are justified by God's free grace. That's how. God justifies sinners by His free grace. Let's start with this big Bible word, justification. Here it is. You ready? Let me give it to you very simply. Sometimes people use an analogy of like a, a, a law, like a, a legal setting, and it is a legal term. And they use the example of like a courtroom, like a person has like broke a law, and they come in and they're not capable of paying the fine, and the judge pardons them, right, and lets them go free, forgives it. That's only half of what justification means, okay? To justify, to be justified, is to not only have our sin pardoned, that's part of it, Justification biblically goes a step further. It's having our sin removed and the perfection of the one who removes it credited to us. That's the Bible's teaching on what justification means. It means to have our sin removed and then to have all of the righteousness of Jesus given to us. That's justification. It's not just forgiveness. Forgiveness is a clean slate. God doesn't clean slate us. He clean slates us and then He writes on that slate righteousness, holiness, perfection. Now what's beautiful about that, and we're going to address this in in, in some points of application in a minute, it is to be declared just, not to practically and actually be just. Now we know this is true, right? Because if you believe the gospel and are following Jesus, you know you're not just. Matter of fact, you might have proven it already today. In a dark corner of your mind, soul, heart, or your home. That you are not practically just. But the good news of the gospel is, what Jesus has done is declared us to be so, even though we are not yet so. 
This is why the book of Hebrews is so important and the rest of the book of Romans is so important for us understanding that those in Christ constantly are killing sin because we hate sin because we have righteousness implanted in us and on us. And so we grow in what the Bible calls sanctification. Being cleaned up, acting more like Jesus. So sinners are now justified. They have their sin taken away and Christ's righteousness given to them. When they repent and believe. I don't know if you've recognized it or not, but that's really, really good news. Because remember, whether we're on an alp or in the bottom of a mine, we are as incapable of reaching God's glory, right? But notice here, the source of this justification is God and His free grace. In other words, God's justifying work is His, and it's freely given on God's part to be received without cost on the recipient's part. God freely gives it without cost on the recipient's part. Let me read you another little quote from Stott here. I, I fell in love with Stott this week. I like reading various guys, but I couldn't get away from Stott. So I've, all my little footnotes are Stott. Fundamental to the gospel of salvation is the truth that the saving initiative from beginning to end belongs to God the Father. This made me cry this week, so I'm going to try to read this without squalling. So... Help me, Jesus. No formulation of the gospel is biblical which removes the initiative from God and attributes it either to us or even to Christ. It is certain that we did not take the initiative for we were sinful, guilty and condemned, helpless and hopeless. Nor was the initiative taken by Jesus Christ in the sense that He did something which the Father was reluctant or unwilling to do. That's... That's huge. Because it's real easy to view Jesus as sort of this reluctant sacrifice. Oh God, I don't want to do this. No, no, no. Nor was it the initiative taken by Jesus in the sense that He did something which the Father was reluctant or willing to do. To be sure, Christ came voluntarily and gave Himself freely, yet He did it in submissive response to the Father's initiative. So the first move was God the Father's, and our justification is freely by His grace, His absolutely free and utterly undeserved favor. God's grace, or grace is God loving, God stooping, God coming to rescue, God giving Himself generally in and through Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. So in other words, all of salvation belongs to God. And it was God's free decision to come and justify, make right those who repent and believe. In other words, all of salvation is bound up in God's loving heart for you. If you ever wonder if God loves you, go back and read this passage. His love is so thick that it was the Trinity's plan from eternity past for the Father to initiate freely by His grace. is what grace means. It's His free, kind, powerful action toward sinners to come and Himself provide what He Himself demanded so that salvation is never bound up in my goodness or my badness but in His free grace alone. Which means there's nobody on this planet that can't be saved by repentance and faith. Because <laughs> it's not on them. Jesus loves to save the most hardened terrorist. And the most backward pretend Christian who thinks they belong simply because they check a list. Both in need of the same grace. 
It's freely done on God's part to be received without cost on the recipient's part. There's no price you have to pay. God Himself pays the price and it's His free offer. Next observation, verse 24. The second part of verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is, sinners are justified through Jesus's Jesus, J-U-S-U-S, apostrophe, showing, showing possession, right? It's Jesus' redemption. It's His work of redemption. And that's pretty important, that it's redemption through Jesus. In other words, redemption is a work of Jesus, not a result of us. Sinners are justified through Jesus' redemption. So, we're justified through Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. Redemption is a fun term. It's a good Bible word. Justification is a legal term. Redemption is a marketplace term. You know where it's applied? It's a fascinating word. This word is mostly used referencing the purchasing of slaves at market in order to set them free. Paul, knowing this, takes this term and applies it to Jesus' work. Just like someone with the heart of God would buy a slave in the market and set them free because that's what God wants to do. Jesus came and took people enslaved to the curse and by His sacrifice bought them from slavery and set them free to know Him and pursue Him. Which is why he'll argue in chapter 6 that if you're in Christ, there's no such thing as loving your sin more than Jesus because when He changes you and redeems you, you don't go back to the chains. What slave would go back to be sold again? The logical argument is nobody would. Which is why he'll argue in chapter 6, 7, and 8 that if you're in Christ, you're killing sin because that's what set free people do. So Jesus' work on the cross frees us from sin and the curse so that we can now pursue Christ as our greatest desire and reward. Then we see another observation, verse 25a, first part of verse 25. Justification and redemption are made possible by propitiation and received by faith. That's a big word, I get it. I, mean, I told you we're using a lot of big Bible words because they're in the Bible. So justification and redemption are made possible by propitiation and received by faith. First part of verse 25. Alright, so remember redemption is in Jesus. Verse 25, whom... That is, Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Propitiation. Here's what it means. It means to satisfy God's wrath. Now, I don't have time to unpack. This is a whole sermon by itself. There's a pagan understanding of propitiation. There's a Christian understanding of propitiation. The pagan understanding is a petty deity being satisfied by the sacrifice of something because he's petty. It's not the way the Bible presents propitiation. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us enough for us to know that wrath is the only right response to the curse, to sin. I'll give you an illustration. Well, let me say this and then I'll give you an illustration. We have a tendency to think anger is innately wrong. That wrath is innately wrong. It's not. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Now, I wouldn't say that if anger were a sin, would it? Would it? I'm just, no, I promise you, there's no trick here. Be angry and do not sin, right? I'm not playing a student 
teacher trick on you. The Bible wouldn't say, be angry and do not sin if anger was a sin innately, right? No, it wouldn't, right? So anger's not a sin. Anger's not a problem. As a matter of fact, we would understand that anger is a necessary emotive response to love being spurned. The painful example, maybe, right? Let's say you're married happily. And all of the sudden, you discover your spouse has been having an adulterous relationship on you for the past five years. What is going to be the eventual response? Anger. Why? Precisely because you loved. Love has been stepped on, drugged through the mud, and then the next emotive response is anger because anger is what happens when we love. Let's give you another example. Let's say someone breaks into your home and does terrible, awful things to your family. Awful example, right? Are you going to be, aw, bummer. No. I'm likely to go on a murderous rampage. I'm going to find them and do all kinds of terrible things to them before I extinguish them. Why? Because I love my family. Does that make sense? Extreme example. I get it. Totally extreme example. But you get the point. Anger is a necessary response because we love. God is righteously angry at the curse because the day you eat of it, you will die. Death is contrary to created order. God created life. The curse introduced death. And so when death comes at His image bearers and pillages all of created order, God's not sitting back going, He is righteously upset. And so therefore, God's wrath isn't this petty thing. It is right. It's part of the righteousness of God. That it is right for God to be angry. So therefore, part of Jesus' work on the cross was to satisfy God's righteous wrath. And this is why this is important. If Jesus doesn't satisfy it for us, we have to receive it. Which is what hell is. It is the continual, ongoing punishment of those outside of Jesus forever by God. I know that's uncomfortable, but just read your Bible. Right? It, it, that's what it is. We have a tendency, because we want to soften it, to talk about it as the absence of God. That is not how the Bible presents it. It is God eternally executing justice rightly forever on those who refuse to come to Jesus. God is the one who created it, not Satan. As a matter of fact, we read in the text, He created it for Satan and His angels, and all those who stay on that side get it. So what did God do righteously? Because He's good and just, He came. And He Himself, Jesus Christ, the eternal God, took His own penalty so that He could dispense rightly and truly His righteousness to those who come underneath His sacrifice. Another stock quote. You ready? According to the Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated His own holy wrath through the gift of His own dear Son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Thus, God Himself gave Himself to save us from Himself. Amen. Yeah. So, justification and redemption are made possible by this work of satisfying rightly God's wrath. 
Verse 25b, propitiation shows that God is righteous. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. So this work of satisfying His wrath shows that God's right. Why is it necessary that God put on display that He's right? Because we learn here that God passed over previous sins without executing justice on them. Genesis to Malachi. Pick your book. (laughs) And you'll read an example. Right? Full of examples where God, if He's righteous, should have wholesale wiped out everybody. But He didn't. Can you think of some examples? Adam and Eve? Noah? Abraham? You, You see it? Right? Moses? Joshua, David, Solomon, right? The fool Rehoboam, Hezekiah. I mean, just walk through the text. If God's right, He should have killed them all. Let me just give you an example. Because it might be my second favorite chapter in the whole Bible because it reminds me of me. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. If you would indulge me by turning there because we're also going to use it as an application in just a minute. Um, This came up this week providentially. Isn't it funny? I told you the story like how if you use a Bible reading plan long enough, God has this amazing way of circling back through that plan at just the right time and the right place to apply something that was coming up. It's just cool. Spontaneity grows in the garden of discipline. So you want those spontaneous moments with God? Be disciplined. This is how it works, right? It's just how it works, okay? So, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, uh, Hezekiah, he, he was a pretty good king. He did good things for Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, you remember, um, there's bad stuff that happened and Israel split. Ten northern tribes go their own way. A guy named Jeroboam makes some calves. And so that becomes how they try to worship the Lord, but it's idolatry and just boom, sin after sin, bad king after bad king. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, ruled by the line of David. So Hezekiah is from the line of David. Now one of the things Hezekiah discovers is the book of the law. He discovers the Bible. And they hadn't been keeping the law. And particularly the section regarding the Passover. So Hezekiah gets fired up and goes, man, God's been good to us. If we don't obey, He might get us. Paraphrase. Paraphrase. And so He sends people throughout the land to gather at Jerusalem and, 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 and celebrate the Passover. And then some people in the north particularly are jeering at them and making fun of them because after all, who needs to go to Jerusalem? we got the calves here in Samaria. Who do you think you are? And they don't come. But other people are cut to the heart. And they come to Jerusalem, and we pick up in verse 17. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who is not clean, to consecrate it to the Lord. For, here's the reason, purpose clause, for a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. Those are tribes in the northern kingdom. They're Yankees. They don't know there's such thing as sweet tea. 
They're lost. Unrepentant. No, just in case. I actually wrote that in the margin of my Bible. They're Northern Kingdom Yankees. They, they don't know. They're not from the tribe of Judah. They've been cut off from Jerusalem so long that they think Baal is normal. They think the golden calves are normal. They think the high places and the other gods of other nations are normal. And so they don't know to come consecrated and ready to worship the Lord. And so what do they do for these northern kingdom people who don't know? They provide sacrifices because they haven't cleansed themselves. Yet, he go, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. In other words, they're, they're breaking the law. They're doing it as it's not prescribed. They've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. For Hezekiah, and and why? Why are they able to do this? For Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, ready for this? May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. You ready for verse 20? And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. They're keeping the law. They're not doing right. They're rebelling against God. What does God do? He passes over their sin. Now I want to submit this to you. If God doesn't pay for that punishment, or if God doesn't pay for that sin, God's not right. Because He allowed righteousness to be torn down. And He just winked at it as though it didn't matter. This is why Jesus' sacrifice is so important. As Jesus goes to the cross, according to verse 25, and He satisfies God's wrath to show that God's right. Why? Because He passed over previous sins. He let these people go free. And so what does He do? He pays for their sin by putting Jesus on the cross and executing judgment on Jesus for all of these northern Yankees who do not know better. That's you and me. (laughs) That's us. Because the reality is, the reality is, even though we may find ourselves in Christ through repentance and faith, we continue to break God's law. We continue to not measure up. And in order to make sure God secures those who trust in Jesus, He satisfies all of God's wrath in the person of Jesus once for all, forever, so that those who come by repentance and faith have all of their sin, past, present, and future, dealt with in that moment. So that He's just, He paid for sin, and He is now, we're going to read in verse 26, the justifier who has, of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is, this is why this good news is so incredibly important. So propitiation shows God's righteous. He has to do this because He has to maintain his reputation as being right. If God doesn't punish sin, he's not right. But he does punish sin, and he actively does so in Jesus on the cross. I had a note here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, um, but I want you to go read at some point, Atonement, Jesus paying for sin. You know, we even There's even a song we sing about Father turning His face away, that somehow God abandons Jesus. That's an acceptable, okay theory of atonement. I'm not an abandonment theory guy. I've never taught you all that. But I just want you to read Psalm 22 at some point. Read Psalm 22. And then go and read the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. You're going to find an awful lot of crossover there. And, and, and here's why I'm going here with you. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, 1. 
I don't think Jesus is making a statement about the Father going away somewhere. Go read Psalm 22. Don't have, that's a sermon in and of itself. Go re, just read Psalm 22. And read it through the lens of what's happening at the cross. I think you'll discover, like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, I think what you'll discover is that the Trinity hasn't somehow divided themselves. But the Father is actively punishing the Son. And I think Jesus is crying out from the cross. A, a popular technique of His day, it's called remez, in which the rabbi would call out a verse of Scripture. And he does this multiple times, which is why the Pharisees got on him. He would quote like Psalm 8, 1 and 2 when he came into Jerusalem. And the reason they got so mad is because they know what verse 3 said. And when Jesus cries out from the cross, Psalm 22, 1, you go read the rest of the psalm, I think you'll discover there's some activity going on, there's a price being paid for your sin and mine. And the Father's executing judgment on the Son for you and me. Which is why we do Galatians six fourteen. I boast only in the cross. Because I ain't got nothing else. All of my sin was paid for there, so it's my boast. So the Father executing punishment for my sin mm, shows God is righteous. It shows, verse 26, God is just and the justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus. In other words, all of salvation is bound up in God. And we're recipients who can never boast in our effort to gain salvation or boast in our deserving salvation. So how do we obey? I'll give you three quick points of obedience. Then we're done. If this message of the gospel has awakened the need for salvation, and, and listen, this, you, some of you know my story. I'm 20 years old, born and raised in this town, except for the four years my, my wife and I were in graduate school in Fort Worth, Texas. Born and raised in this town. 20 years old before I heard this message. 20 years old. In one of the most per capita church cities in America. I heard a lot about what not to do in order to earn God's favor. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. If you do this, you do this. You just like, oh God, I never can measure up to that. So it's just better to quit. Put on the Jesus t-shirt. Play the pretend game. Because that's a lot easier. At least it sounded like it was. 20 years old before I heard this message. When I heard this message for the first time, it took me from death to life. Jesus didn't ask my permission. Jesus didn't... Jesus invaded. And my motives were one thing... And quite literally, one minute later, I was hot on the inside and I had a new set of desires. He changed me. I heard this message and it absolutely took me from death to life. It just did. That's my story. It may not be your story. That's my story. It took me from death to life. So therefore, I have great confidence. This is one of the reasons I'm, I'm the global crazy nut that I am. And I'm, I'm crazy and I'll go into the Islamic center and make friends with people. Because I, this message will take people from death to life. Just like that. It did me. And so therefore, I trust it will in other people too. <laughs> it's crazy. I believe it. Change me, change them too. So why not try, right? And so here's, if, if you're sitting here this morning, you may be a perfect Roman. You're born and reared here and you, and you, you have that. You've never heard this before and it's a shame. But this message can take dead people and bring them to life. And if that's you this morning, it's real simple. Say, Jesus, I'm turning away from the rebellion and I'm trusting in you. It's all it takes. And, and, and you're in. And now He'll put His Spirit in you and He'll begin to walk you into perfection one day and you'll reach it at your casket or when He returns. It'll be a lifelong process. But it's beautiful. <laughs> and it's awesome. And He slowly, gradually 
makes us hate sin more and causes us to love righteousness more. And so I say, if that's you this morning, feel free to come find me or Pastor Jim or Pastor Joseph. Uh, guys, just make sure we're standing at the back. And if you want to come talk to us about that, please do. And, and, and if it's about that, if it's not about that, save it for later. But it's, if, if it's about following Jesus this morning, come find us. We'll be in the back, okay? And it limps you through the rest of the week. Working out your salvation is living it tomorrow. It's acting on it Tuesday. It's acting on it Wednesday. It's acting on it Thursday. It's waking up and when fear and anxiety attack you, you lay back down, you open the Word and you start asking Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father, all of Trinity's power to come to work in you. Rescue me from this. Help me limp through this. Show me you're faithful. Show me that I'm not trustworthy, but you're trustworthy and you're in me and you're working through me for my good and your glory. Help me, Jesus. That's how you work it out. That's how you walk it out. Right? It's, I don't know what to do here. Jesus, will you teach me? And you wait for Him. See, Jesus isn't efficient. Efficiency is a, it's, it's somebody else's value. It's not Jesus. Sometimes Jesus says, wait on me till I respond. And you sit there and you wait till Jesus responds. And it's okay. Sometimes He's efficient. Sometimes He answers immediately. Sometimes it's five years later. And you just got to limp it through. Walk it out. Trust Him. That's why it's called faith, right? And that's why God gives it to you. It's why you don't have to earn it. So walk it out. Live it out. Some of that looks like, guys, we've got to be better evangelists. We've got to be better evangelists. We've got to be, we, we talk about our doctrine, we talk about what we believe. That's got to get practiced somewhere we don't believe it. We have in, in the West, you, you don't want a worldview lesson, I get that. But, but we're good Greeks. We're really good Greeks because Western civilization ultimately has its roots in, in, in basically Hellenization, the Greekification of the world. Alexander the Great. And in Greek thought, it was easy to separate belief and action. It's easy to say you could believe one thing and not do it. It's just the way Greeks thought. It's, it's called dualism. They put things in two different camps. So you could be over here and over here, or be all over here and not over here. The Bible knows no such world. Just doesn't. Matter of fact, scripturally, um, faith and action go together, which is James, right? All of James, right? All the Romans, all of it, right? Noah could not say, I believe you, God, and not build a boat. I believe you, God, not building a boat would really mean I don't believe you, God. So, all through the Bible, you see this. Belief leads to action. So, therefore, if we believe the gospel, we've got to be good evangelists. We've got to break out of our Christian subcultures and our comfort of our little Christian pretend kingdom world into the dark recesses of our town and preach the good news and heal and fix what's broken. That's the only way the kingdom will come. It's not going to happen in our quiet little sanctuaries isolated from everything hurt and broke. It just won't happen. Read Acts. Right? It is us engaging darkness with this message and healing what's broken. So we've got to walk it out. We've got to work it out, which means we're going to get challenged. We're going to get pushed. We're going to have questions we, have, we don't have answers to. I have tons of questions I don't have answers to, and I don't share them with you because I don't want to wreck you. <laughs> I ain't got it all figured out. And if I shared my questions with some of you, it would wreck you. And I just don't want to go there with you. You don't need that, but I don't want to hear some of your questions either. So we're all in the same boat. Jesus knows. We come to Him. We walk with Him. We walk out our salvation. And then finally, we're worshiping people. We're worshiping people. I, I, I want to I leave us here uh, with the end of Second Chronicles 30. If you haven't read Chronicles, 
I know, I, I get it. It's Chronicles. It's not Romans. It's Chronicles. I encourage you to go read the Chronicles. Because you'll find an awful lot of passages that, that David and where, where God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, instituted worship. And you'll read amazing passages about worship and music and singing and playing loud cymbals all the time before the Lord, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And that's what, that's what the priests did, that's what the Levites did. And there were some who were appointed just to lead worship. Which is why in Christian churches we take that role as a worship leader very important because God... God wants to be worshipped. It's kind of what we do as Christians. And I want you to see what happens at the end of Second Chronicles 30 where we just looked about the Passover. And I want you to just, I'm going to read it and then just, this is what I want us to do. This is how we're going to close and how we're going to approach our time of singing. Okay, you ready? Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 23. Then the whole assembly, not a few, not one or two who are passionate about it, but the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. That's not efficient. <laughs> this is awesome. God's presence is better than everything else. Let's do it another seven days. Okay. Imagine that. 14 day worship gathering. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. I love how God inspired with gladness. Not with, oh God, can we ever do this again? What's wrong with these people? They kept it another seven days with gladness. It was a glad thing. And for Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves. They were working toward holiness. They were setting themselves apart. They were becoming righteous. And they did so in great numbers. God was saving people, making them right in great numbers. Isn't that awesome? The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel... And the sojourners, the outsiders, those who needed to get saved were coming too. See, if, if we are a worshiping people, I trust Jesus will draw the lost even into this building in spite of us. The sojourners, even the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. They rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had not been anything like it in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to His holy habitation in heaven. I would love that to be what our Sunday mornings look like. We respond in worship. Gladness, rejoicing, great numbers, Jesus bringing sojourners, outsiders in. And with great joy and gladness, we're willing to hang out because it's like, well, Jesus is better than life, so life's outside of here and let's hang here. And we linger over God because He's better. That's that's walking out your salvation. That's living it out. So you know what? I just want to invite you to, to sing with gladness and with great rejoicing and being willing to linger over Jesus because there's nothing better, truly. If you're in Christ today, that's my invitation to you. If not, I invite you to come talk to us about that. So let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would um, you'd do a great, mighty work in this little fellowship. We pray for the Kingston campus that you're doing the same thing over there. Father, we, we ask that even, even down at Restoration Rome, Global Impact, where we, where we have undertaken to obey you and engage as you've 
taught us to and called us to, that you would continue to pour out your Spirit in South Rome, and you would heal what's broken and fix what's broken, and bring to faith in Jesus those who are broken. But right now in this place, Jesus, we ask you to meet us in a powerful way. We ask you to tear down walls of unbelief. We ask you to tear down barriers that keep us from you. We ask you to move in the hearts of your people to make us delight in you. Help us, Jesus. Holy Spirit, rule this time well. We pray in Jesus' name.